Thank you so much for singing with us. You may be seated. Well, good morning and happy Memorial Day weekend to you. It is, as Matt said, uh, a, a really good, fun, we get, you know, summer kicked off, but may we never forget the ultimate sacrifice that some people paid so that we can come to a place here and not be persecuted for it. Our freedoms were bought with a price. They always are. And so let's remember that. And I want to just say, Matt, thank you for reminding me of how much my shirt looks like a picnic tablecloth. Because we do have one in our camping supplies, and it looks very similar to this. A little more red than pink, but anyway, it's awesome. So I will always forever be known with this shirt as a picnic time. So uh, I appreciate that. That is well, well done, well said. You're also going to have to do it for second service now, too, because uh, we need to keep it rolling. So anyway, uh, but welcome. Glad you're here uh, on this Memorial Day weekend, and uh, just, just glad that you're here. Whether you're here in the room, whether you're online, uh, we're just glad that you made it. Um, so I want to start by sharing some names with you of some people, and I want you to be cognizant of what you think about when I say these names. I'm just going to give you three different names. You're going to know who these people are uh, from history, but I want to just give you these names, and I want you to be cognizant of what you think about when I say their name. The first name, the first person is Mother Teresa. Some of you are nodding your head because you have thoughts that immediately came into your head when I said Mother Teresa. Let me give you the next one. Abraham Lincoln. What comes to your mind? Abraham Lincoln. Then I want to give you one more. Adolf Hitler. Mm. Some furrowed brows on that one. That was a little bit out of left field, wasn't it, after the first two? A little bit different. So let me ask you this. Those thoughts that came to your mind, and I'm guessing that the vast majority of us had very strong thoughts and very strong emotions and very key things that you thought about when I said their names. Let me ask you this. When I said those names and you had those thoughts, what do those thoughts represent for those people? You know what I would say? It's one word. Legacy. They made a mark on history with their legacy, whether it was good or whether it was bad. They left a legacy, didn't they? Something that all of us know that they made a mark on history, and today we're talking about this topic, and it certainly applies to Memorial Day weekend, the topic of legacy. And so, what I want to talk about is every person has a legacy. You have a legacy. Every human being does. Now, it may not be as wide-reaching as like Abraham Lincoln or Mother Teresa or, thankfully, uh, an Adolf Hitler. But... We have a legacy. You have a mark that you are making on the people around you and in the world around you. And so the question that I want to ask today is a very simple one. What is your legacy? What is the mark that you're leaving on this world? 
on the people around you? What is your legacy? So what I want to do is I want to take a close look at three verses today, uh, but before I dig into that, we're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, if you'd like to follow along on your phone or your own Bible, we're going to be in 2 Timothy, but before I get there, I think it's really important to set up the context for what I'm about to read, because why it was written and who it was written to really makes a big difference as to how we understand what I'm about to read. And so this context is the Apostle Paul wrote these words, and these words are contained in a letter that he was writing to a guy named Timothy, hence we called the book Second Timothy. Isn't that amazing? The creativity is flowing today, right? But we called the book Second Timothy because the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to this young fellow follower of Christ who Paul is handing off leadership to. Timothy is kind of becoming the next Paul because Paul can't last forever. He can't do what he does forever. And so Paul has been intentionally handing off leadership and power and influence to this guy named Timothy. And so he writes this letter to Timothy to encourage him, to challenge him and say, Timothy, To follow Christ means you do these things. This is what you need to be about. This is how you need to be passionate for this stuff. And he contains all of these things in this letter. Now, you might be asking, well, why did he write Timothy a letter? Why didn't he just tell him? Well, the reason is because the Apostle Paul and Timothy were separated by a long distance. I have a map of this to kind of give you an idea of where he's at. So the Apostle Paul is in the city of Rome in Italy. Okay? And so in the Mediterranean Sea, if you have this area, he is located in Italy. Timothy is located in an area known as Asia Minor, which is to the east of there. We don't know the exact city he was in. It was possible, in fact, quite probable, that Timothy was currently at, working at a church in the city of Ephesus, a church that Paul started. Okay, And so Paul is in Italy. He's in Rome. And Timothy is in Asia Minor. That is a huge distance of time and space, especially considering that you would have to get there either overland or across the Mediterranean Sea, which would have taken weeks to get there. It doesn't seem that far because today, you know what we do? We'd hop on an airplane, right? And so you could be there in half of a day, but not in his world. It would take days, if not weeks, to get from there to there by ship or by boat or by overland, it's obviously a long distance. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy to encourage him, to challenge him. And where I'm going to pick up the letter, I'm only going to read a tiny little piece of the letter of 2 Timothy. But this comes right on the heels of Paul has just written to Timothy and said, Timothy, you need to remember if you're a follower of Christ, if you're going to be a leader in the church, you need to do this And you need to be about this, and you need to do these things. And then after that, the Apostle Paul explains something really important to Timothy, an awareness that Paul has about his life. And I want to read that. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, explaining these things about his own life. Paul says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. 
And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So what I want to do is I want to break this passage down because there's a lot in there. It's only three verses, but there's a lot packed into those three verses, as you would imagine. And and, and you guys have learned, whether I'm wearing a tablecloth for picnic or not, I can make a lot out of just a couple of words, right? But I believe God wants to say something very, very powerful, very strong to us today out of these words. So let's start with verse 6. Paul starts by telling Timothy, as for me, Timothy... My life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. Well, what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying really two things there. One, he's saying literally what he says at the end of that verse, the time of his death is near. Paul is feeling, he's getting this sense, maybe God outright told him, we don't know that, Paul doesn't explain that, but somehow Paul knows that his life is coming to an end very soon. Somehow, Paul knows that his life is about to literally be poured out as an offering to God, which means he's going to die and he's going to meet God face to face in eternity. This is what Paul is saying, but he's also saying something else. The Apostle Paul is also saying that throughout his entire life, he has been pouring his life. He's been sacrificing his time and his energy to do one thing. To bring people to a knowledge and understanding of the love of Jesus and how much he loves them. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, my life exists to point other people to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. My life has been poured out for the sake of other people and for God. In fact, it begs a question that I think we need to pause and ask. Does your life point people to Jesus? Perhaps a better question would be the opposite of that. Does your life point people away from Jesus? Think about it. When people see and experience you, Do they think Jesus? When people hear what you have to say to them or about them, do they experience the love of God? Does your life point people to Jesus or does it point people away from Jesus? See, what Paul is saying is that our life, your life, my life, if we are followers of Christ, it has to be something called a living sacrifice. God does not want us to literally be dead on the altar. He wants us to be a living sacrifice. And the Apostle Paul actually writes this in a different letter. You know that, right? The book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. This is what Paul writes. He actually explains this in different language. He says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, when you see the phrase brothers and sisters, it it should be a kind of a tag to you to say he's writing to Christians. He's writing to followers of Christ. He's specifically asking them to do something. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you 
to give your bodies, to give your lives to God because of all he has done for you. Let them, let your life be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. The way we worship God, I don't know about you, but when we think of the word worship, automatically, this is sometimes my thinking, and it means my thinking is a little bit wrong, I automatically, when I think of worship, I think of music. Let's stand and worship, right? And we're like, ooh, we're getting ready to worship God now. No, we've, we should have been worshiping God long before the music started. You worship God in how you treated somebody this morning, or you didn't. We worship God in how we treated that person that cut us off in the roundabout in Wanakee, my favorite place. (laughs) Or my other favorite place, the parent loop. Yes. The love and forgiveness that flows through the parent loop is amazing. Okay, let's be honest. It's the opposite. Pure satanic evil. No, no, no joke. If it's been a while since you've been in the parent loop, you should just do it one morning during the busy time just to see the depravity of humanity. (laughs) You think I'm joking? (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) And sometimes, uh, yeah, I have the same feelings too. The truth is that God wants us to be a living sacrifice. This is the way to worship him. The way to worship him is to live your life in such a way that it's always pleasing to God. How you look at somebody, how you treat somebody, how you put somebody first, how you tell other people about Jesus even though you think they might get offended is truly the way Worship God. It's how you live. I'm glad we sing. Our worship team is awesome. You guys did amazing today. But that's not the only way to worship God. And so we need to be a living sacrifice. Now the truth is, being a living sacrifice requires us to sacrifice, to surrender every day. I know I have to do this. I have to recommit, I have to resurrender my life on a daily basis to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean I recommit, like pray the prayer of salvation, Jesus, come into my life again today. Forgive me of my sins again today. That's not necessarily what I mean. But what I do mean is that we have to recommit, re-up in our commitment. For example, I don't know about you, but I tend, as a human being, to drift. Any, anybody else drifters in here? I tend to drift. Uh, when I make a commitment, I would like to think that my commitment is solid and I never waver from it. Well, the honest truth is I sometimes do. I tend to be a drifter at times. For example, uh, and not just spiritually, I mean in every way, right? Let's say that I commit to eating healthier. Well, that's a great thing, right? That's a wonderful thing. We should do that, Absolutely. But then somebody, because I talk about this all the time, brings me a plate of cookies. Or my wife comes home from the grocery store, and she just saw a can of Pringles, and she decided she needed to buy a couple of them. And I see them in the pantry. Oh. How how many of you are willing to be honest here this morning? I'm just curious what our honesty level is. How many of you are willing to admit 
that you have at least wanted to or maybe have at some point in your life polished off an entire can of Pringles on your own? All right, quite a few of you. Good. I just wanted to know who I was in the room with. All right, whether you're honest and whether uh, you like to polish off a can myself. My hand's up because I do too, right? And, and I do the same with cookies. I'm like, oh man, now I, I usually am pretty, you know, measured in that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to eat a couple. I do like to savor things. And so the fact that I like to savor things is what saves me usually, not because I'm trying to eat well, right? It's because I'm like, I should only have one or two because then I will have one or two for the next two weeks. That's how I think. I'm like, this is a good thing, Right? but I drift. Uh, let me give you another deeper level, more serious example. So there are times, and I don't know if anybody in here is, and I'm not going to ask you to admit this if this is true, but sometimes I'm in a room or I'm in a, in a meeting or I'm having conversation with a group of people, and at times I will have this thought, I'll have a story or I'll have an idea come into my head that if I tell that story is going to make me look good. And I think, man, I, I should tell that story. Number one, it's a funny story. But it also is something cool that I did, and it'll make me look better. Anybody else struggle with that? I struggle with that. Why? Because I drift. I drift into thinking that this life is about me when it's not. I drift. And so on a daily basis, I have to recommit. I have to resurrender my life to Jesus. I have to re-up in my commitment. All right, we could spend a long time on that first verse, but we've got to move on so that we can get to the next thing. Verse 7, what does Paul say? So Paul goes on, he says, okay, my life is getting ready to end. My life has been poured out as an offering to God. My whole life has done that. And then he explains to Timothy what this means. Verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, I think Paul is suggesting something here that is important to know. And that is, he is suggesting that there are a lot of fights that we could get involved in in life. Right? There are a lot of races that we could run in life. But I think Paul is suggesting here that there is one fight, one race that is better than all others to make sure that we get involved in. One fight, one race, and what is that? To embrace Jesus more and more every day, to point other people to him, and to do our best to defeat sin better on a daily basis. I don't know about you, but the more we have of Jesus, the more we're able to defeat sin. The more of sin we allow and we embrace in our life, the more Jesus decreases. Not because he's not powerful enough, but because we've chosen sin over Jesus. And so it becomes a fight, a struggle, a race that we are running, that we are chasing. And the question I have for you today is, what are you fighting for? What are you chasing? What are you running after? What is your life about? Give you an example of this. So I, I did some checking on this to see if I, if I was accurate on this. But did you know 
that since the television was invented back in the 50s and 60s, um, we have measured the statistics for TV watching in this country. And uh, we have the Nielsen ratings, you know, that rate like how many people are watching. But then in addition to that, we have statistics on what people are watching, how often they're watching, how much they're watching, all kinds of stuff. And did you know that since the 1960s, it started, the average was somewhere in the two to four hour per day range when TV first came out, right? It was a novel thing. It was an amazing thing. And there wasn't all that much to watch. I remember, you know, other people talking about the fact that, I mean, you had a show and it would come on at a certain time and then the TV would just go off. Like it would just be static after that, right? And now we have 24-7, you can watch movies all day long and all night long, right? And so did you know that the statistics of TV watching has slowly but steadily gone up every decade, to the point now where the average right now is anywhere from six to eight hours per day for the average American. Now, some of you are going, what? How in the world do they even, do they not work? Or what's going on? Right? I know, that's what, that, that's what my thought was. I was like, six to eight hours a day? I'm not even sure I get to even see the TV in the room that long for, you know, four seconds some days. But the truth is that this is an average, and so the, the span and the article that I read and the studies that I read on this were interesting because it spans all the way from a lot of people, they watch very little to no TV at all, all the way up to some people watch 12 to 15 hours a day, which is hard to imagine, right? And so the average American, though, the meat of these studies, the vast majority of Americans, they fall in that six to eight hours per day range. Now, here's what's interesting. I, d I run the math on this, okay? I know that's always dangerous. You're like, oh, you get you're a history teacher. You're right, so it's always dangerous. But I ran the math. If you spent two hours a day, so not six to eight, but just two hours a day on whatever hobby you want to choose, it could be, you know, knitting. It could be reading. It could be watching TV. It could be whatever it is, whatever you want to call it. But let's just use watching TV since I started with that. Let's say you spent two hours a day watching TV, and let's say you live to be about 80 years old. Do you know how much time, if you add up all the cumulative hours every day throughout the rest of your life, if you live to be 80 years old, do you know how many hours, how many years you would spend watching TV? Just, all, just shy of seven years worth of your life would be in front of the TV. That's a little shy of a decade of your life, a decade of your life spent watching a screen. By the way, these statistics do not include smartphones, social media, and other streaming devices. Think about it. What is the legacy that we're building? And then the Apostle Paul goes on to say this. He says, and I have remained faithful. Now, I think because of how church used to be done, and maybe even still how it's done sometimes today, we associate the word faithful. You guys have heard me say this, but I'm going to harp on it until we get it right. We associate the word faithful with perfection. We do. We, we, we associate that. We associate that if I am faithful to God, that means I never mess up. 
That's, that's sometimes what we think. But let me just give you a couple examples to prove to you that faithfulness does not mean perfection. You guys remember David, right? In, in the Old Testament, King David. What did King David do? He did a lot of amazing things. He wrote a huge portion of Scripture. It's called the Book of Psalms. And he also killed Goliath, defeated an enemy that was trying to defeat Israel. That was a big deal. But we sometimes forget the other things that David did. Do you remember that David also had an affair? He did. It's recorded very, very specifically in God's Word. He committed adultery. And then, you know what he did? Like, it would be a wonderful story if he's like, oh, he, he realized his, the error of his ways and he got better and all that stuff. Nope, he didn't. You know what he did? You guys, a lot of you already know what he did. He committed murder to cover up his indiscretion. Let's hire that guy at Northridge. No, seriously. What, what if I brought this guy up and, and, or some person up and I say, so uh, a little bit of a rough past... Right? So he's, uh, he's done some time, <laughs> a life sentence for killing a guy to cover up the indiscretions that he had. Like how many of you, but, but he's fully committed to Jesus today. How many of you be like, this is a great idea. Pastor Brent, you're amazing. No, no way. You're sitting there going, we need to take care of our own pastor and get him out because he's choosing crazy people. And yet, David is described as a man after God's heart. Really? How does that fit with faithfulness? Well, the only way it fits is to understand that faithfulness and perfection are not the exact same thing. Think about Peter. Peter walked on water with Jesus. Woo! Have you guys ever done that? I haven't. I've worn a tablecloth shirt, but I haven't walked on water with Jesus. This will play all day, Matt. This is going to play all day. You gave me about a thousand jokes today. I love it. I haven't walked on water with Jesus. Peter did. Peter walked on water with Jesus. But what else did Peter do? Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times in a row to protect his life. He was a coward. And he threw Jesus under the bus to do it. So why are David, why is Peter considered to be faithful? Here's why. It's not that they didn't mess up. It's what they did when they were confronted with their sin. And this, as Americans, is something I think as American Christianity that we can learn a lot from. When David was confronted in his sin, what did he do? He was broken. He repented which means, we don't know that word repent anymore, it means that you're sorry for what you did and you turn away from it immediately. You don't mess with it anymore. It's over, it's done, you repent. It's about turning away from whatever it is that you did. It's repenting. And he sought forgiveness and he got right with God. Peter did the same thing. When Jesus confronted Peter, Peter repented of that betrayal. And he declared his love and his commitment to Jesus. Three times in a row he had to do it. Faithfulness and perfection is not the same thing. In fact, not a life, living a life perfectly 
Isn't that what God wants? He does want you to live your life faithfully. So how you respond to the sin, to the problems in your life. All right. Again, I spent a long time on verse 7, but we got to keep going. The last verse, Paul now explains what his legacy that he's been building, the legacy that he's been trying to build, he's going to explain what happens as a result. Verse 8. And now, Paul says, the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So what this is really cool about, and I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but this is one of the big things in the legacy. If we seek to establish a legacy with God, live our life as a living sacrifice for Jesus, then our reward is a crown of righteousness. And it's not something that we necessarily get to fully experience at least, maybe bits and pieces, but we don't get to fully experience this in this life. That's what's hard. I don't know about you, but I like immediate fruit, right? We make a change at Northridge. I want to see immediate fruit. I want to see somebody's life change. You know what happens if we don't? This is, I'm just being honest with you. As a pastor, I'm like, mm, it didn't work the first time. Let's move on. That's not probably the best mentality. Sometimes I think that way, though. Ah, it failed. Maybe not. Maybe you just need to give it a little bit of time, Brent. But I don't know about you, but I get impatient. I want the rewards. I want the fruit now. And this reward is something that we might have to wait for. Now, here's the, here's the thing. If I'm talking about legacy here today, and we could, we could be in a lot of different camps here today. I don't know how everybody's feeling. I'm trying to read faces. I know, creepy, <laughs> right? Like, oh, I didn't know that. I need to put on a different face. <laughs> there might be some of you in here that you're thinking, oh, I don't like this message because I don't know if I have established any legacy, let alone the one I want. Maybe you're here and you're worried from today's message because you're thinking that you have established a legacy for your kids and for your family and for your friends and for your neighbors and for your community and for, at your workplace, you know, man, I have established a legacy and it's not the one that I wanted to establish. Maybe you're feeling a little bit of shame today. Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know what my legacy is. I don't know what I've done with my life. And now you feel like the legacy opportunity, the window has passed you by. Maybe you're here and you haven't even graduated high school or elementary school or middle school or college yet. You're still in the beginning stages of your life and you're like, I'm not even ready to think about a legacy. I'm just trying to figure out how to get a job and pay some bills. We're all in different camps here today, aren't we? But let me encourage you that no matter what your situation is, no matter what your possibilities are, no matter what you think your legacy is or isn't or was or could be, no matter what situation you are in, there is always an opportunity to establish a different legacy, one that God 
wants you to establish. There's always that opportunity. Let me give you a couple of examples of this real quick, and this is how I'm going to finish. So I left out an important detail on purpose for the context with why Paul was writing this letter. It wasn't just, it was partly because they were separated by great distance, but it wasn't just that. Do you know where Paul was in the city of Rome when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. He was incarcerated. Now, let, let me just, let's be honest for a minute. Let, let's just get real for a second. If you were to think about a person that is establishing an amazing legacy, would the first person you think about be somebody who is incarcerated in prison? Probably not. How many of you, right away, when you think of the place where you can impact the world, I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to impact the world from prison. Probably not going to think that way. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, reading the words of the Apostle Paul, who wrote them in prison. Your legacy can be established anytime, anywhere. The question is, will you? So let me give you one more example. This question that I'm about to ask you is going to kind of feel like it's coming out of left field, but it's not. There's a reason, there's a purpose. And I'd be curious to know if anybody in here knows this. I actually didn't know this until this week. Uh, in my studies. But how many of you in here would be able to tell me the name of the person who discovered and created the explosive material known as dynamite? Anybody in here know who that person is? I'm just curious. Anybody? Seriously, that, I'd be, I'd be, it'd be awesome if you did, because I, I, I didn't. Okay, nobody in here knows who that person is who discovered dynamite. Okay, so let me ask you this follow-up question. How many of you in here would be able to tell me the name of the person who came up with or started the thing called the Nobel Peace Prize? How many of you know who that is? Anybody in here be able to tell you that? Okay, there's a couple. All right, there are a couple of you. All right, good. Okay, that's better than none. Okay, cool. Well, what if I were to tell you that the guy's name is Alfred Nobel? We have a picture of him. That's Alfred Nobel, lived in the 1800s. What's interesting is Alfred Nobel is the same guy who created the Nobel Peace Prize, but he's also the same guy who discovered and created dynamite, which has been used in countless wars to kill numerous amounts of people. Now, here's what's interesting about his story. In the year 1888, Alfred's brother, Ludwig, by the way, that's a name that I just enjoy saying, Ludwig. Isn't that cool? Alfred's brother, Ludwig, in 1888, died. And a French newspaper mistakenly thought that it was not Ludwig, but it was Alfred who had died. 
And so this French newspaper wrote an obituary for Alfred, who Alfred got to read because he's still alive. How weird would that be, reading your own obituary? And so Alfred started reading this obituary, but what was interesting is the French newspaper gave a title to this obituary for Alfred Nobel, even though, again, he wasn't the one who died. They thought he was. And this was the title that they gave to his obituary. The Merchant of Death is Dead. Whoa. Wake-up call for your legacy. Now, we don't know that what I just told you, all of that is true. What we don't know is how much it affected Alfred Nobel, but apparently it affected him quite a bit. Because with Alfred's last will and testament, he died just a few years later after this obituary came out for his brother. Well, for him, but mistakenly. He died just a few years later, and in his last will and testament, Alfred Nobel decided to give the rest of his wealth, and he was quite wealthy because of dynamite and all that kind of stuff. He was quite wealthy. He gave the rest of his wealth and his, the rest of his estate to establish five different prizes, of which the most famous one, as we all know now, is the Nobel Peace Prize. There's a few people even in this room, that knew that Alfred Nobel was the one that established the Peace Prize. But nobody in this room knew that he was the one that found and discovered and created dynamite. Think about that for a minute. If there's proof anywhere that you can establish a legacy that reaches far beyond yourself and one that is different than the one that maybe you have now, that proves it. So I want to leave you with this question today. It's a heavier one for Memorial Day, I know. I'm sure you guys will still be able to enjoy your brats later on. But if you don't consider this question, let me just, just, just give a strong warning. If you don't consider the question that I'm about to ask, it is possible that you will go through your life either establishing the legacy that you don't want or not really establishing much of a legacy at all. I'm guessing that every person in here wants a legacy that not only honors God but makes a significant mark Maybe not on the entire planet, but on the people around you. So the question that I want to ask you today is this. If your legacy was set in stone today, right now, what would it be? If it was set in stone today, what would it be? And then consider this follow-up to that. Is that the one, is that the legacy that you think you want, that God wants? If it's not, what are you going to do to establish the legacy that God wants you to establish? Consider that this weekend 
And if changes need to be made, don't wait. Change your legacy. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you love us and that you have called us not just to be perfect, but to be faithful. And it would be easy to do one of two things today for all of us, including myself. It would be easy to walk away from this morning and just do life like it's been going. Keep everything the same, keep everything normal, God. It would be, Lord, it would be so easy just to do that because it's what we know. But the problem with that is it may not lead to where we're supposed to go. It may not lead us to who we're supposed to be and to the legacy that we're supposed to leave, the mark that we're supposed to make. And so, God, if there are people here who are feeling ashamed at their legacy, remind them that they are a child of God and that there's always an opportunity to change the legacy. It might mean that they need to call somebody who they have had a broken relationship with for decades and the hurt has been there and they know that the legacy is one of hurt and pain and hatred. God, remind them. All they have to do is at least take that one step. It's going to be a difficult one, but help them to take that step because they can change the legacy. They, it could start today. Maybe some in here realize that their legacy is chasing money, living for the moment, living for the job, living for whatever uh, else maybe they would put into that. Maybe some realize that they spend way too much time looking at screens. Maybe some have been reminded of a person or a group of people that they need to reconnect with because the legacy right now is apathy, isolation. God, remind us of the legacy that you want us. You want us to have the mark that you want us to leave on the people around us and pointing people to you. On this Memorial Day, help us to remember the legacy of people who have gone before, who sacrificed their lives for us. But help us also remember that we are now, currently, right this moment, leaving a legacy for those around us. Every one of those is important. So God, help us to leave the legacy you want. Help us to make the changes we need. Not to be perfect, but to be faithful. We ask this and we pray this in your name, Jesus.